One of the cutest and most fundamentally useless pieces of information that every Australian has is the knowledge of what the word girt means. Girt features in our national anthem and is as archaic and ridiculous as the song itself as it's just an outdated word that means surrounded, but it's always good for a little bit of trivia and something that makes us stick out just a little. Our home is girt by sea and framed by beaches. We're renowned for them, with over 50,000 kilometres of coastline linked by over 10,000 beaches, meaning that if you were to visit a new beach every day, it would take you a little over 27 years to see them all. And yet, out of those 10,000, most people are usually only interested in one. Bondi Beach is considered to be one of the most spectacular beaches in the world and is certainly one of the more popular. Nearly a kilometre long, sloping greenery cuts neatly into wide sands that are constantly being poured at by striking blue waters. The name Bondi went through a series of spelling changes, with many early iterations spelt B-O-O-N-D-I, suggesting that the pronunciation might have been more along the lines of Bundai. And while it's generally accepted that Bondi means the sound of water crashing over rocks, there have been some suggestions that it might also mean a place to fight with nullahs. These differing translations tie into the fact that we don't even have a definitive name for the original people, with Cadigal, Bidigal and Birabirigal all offered as suggestions. Because in those early days of colonisation and invasion, very few people were even capable of writing history and the only ones that could only wrote about what they themselves considered to be of importance. And clearly, the Aboriginal people were not. There are multiple rock carvings to be found around the Bondi area and many artefacts come from there, including the Bondi Point, a type of blackened blade that was first identified at Bondi but can be found all up and down the southeast coast. The first whitefellas came in 1809 and the entirety of the beach as well as 200 acres worth of land was transformed into privately owned land. As roads made things more accessible and the beach became more popular, by the mid-1850s the current owner, Francis O'Brien, graciously allowed the public to visit. But as it started to become incredibly popular and incredibly busy, he threatened to close down access completely as it was his land and for some reason he didn't just like other people coming in. Though this caused an uproar, it was never followed through with, but still, in 1882, the New South Wales government turned Bondi into a publicly owned beach. Now, despite how inviting those waters can look, especially on hot summer days, it was actually illegal to swim in Sydney, having been outlawed in 1803, partly for the safety concerns, but mostly because convicts kept on getting naked and jumping into the harbour. By the 1900s, you could swim if you wanted, but not during daylight hours, as swimming was banned between 9am and 8pm. In 1902, a man by the name of William Gocher dared to defy Section 77 at Manly when he got into the water at midday and was arrested at 1pm. The ban itself was soon overturned, and while Gocha sounds kinda cool, he was also an anti-Semite and a bit of a tool, to be honest. While his stunt did make news and probably did push it through, in all honesty, that law was dying out already. But regardless, the public could now go into the water en masse, and that has been a problem ever since.
Australians can be a bit snobby with our beaches, and Bondi's popularity sometimes works against it in terms of what the locals have to say, but at the end of the day it is so incredibly popular because it is a genuinely lovely place. It's gorgeous, and easily accessible next to a large city surrounded by shops and cafes and restaurants. On average, 2.6 million people visit Bondi annually, and with such high numbers comes a high number of people needing assistance. While it's hardly the roughest waters you can find, Bondi is well known for its unpredictability. It often develops rips, strong currents that can carry people far out to sea before they're even aware of what's happening, and strong winds and king tides all add to dubious conditions. On average, there are about 2,500 rescues a year, with anywhere between 10 and 400 rescues happening every week. These rescues are carried out by two groups. The Blue Bondi Lifeguards, now made famous by the reality TV show Bondi Rescue, and the Yellow and Red Surf Life Savers. The lifeguards are paid, the Surf Life Savers are volunteers. While it's common knowledge that the idea of volunteer surf lifesaving began in Australia, there have been many heated debates as to which beach exactly had this brainwave first, with the two big contenders being Manly and Bondi, with Bronte Beach also sometimes getting into it as well. In fact, this got so contentious that in 2005, Surf Lifesaving Australia literally got a group of historians together to sort this out once and for all. They concluded, as this study has shown, the first group of organised lifesavers formed on Manly Beach in 1899, while moves on Bondi, Bronte and Manly in early 1907 saw the organisation of irregulars, it was the surf bathers of Bondi who first organised themselves into a formal club in February 1907. Many people in Manly still do not accept this. By October 1907, there were nine similar organisations. The Manly Surf Club, Bondi Surf Bathers Lifesaving Club, Coogee Surf Life Brigade, Bronte Surf Brigade, Bondi Surf and Social Club, Temarama Surf Club, Maroubra Surf Club, United Wanderers Surf Club, and Wallara Surf Club. They would all later become the founding members of Surf Lifesaving Australia. Though there had been other lifeguard programs in the world, Surf Lifesaving Australia was unique as it was a volunteer organisation from the very beginning, and being the first of its kind in the world, it was also very innovative. This is most clearly shown in the development of the life-saving reel, which actually happened before the founding of the first club. In 1906, after some debate as to the fastest way to bring distressed swimmers back to shore, Lister Ormsby proposed the idea of a sort of fishing reel, but for people. He demonstrated his idea as best he could with a cotton reel held horizontally with bobby pins, but John Bond understood what he was trying to show and soon made a prototype. Later, a coach builder, G.H. Olding, further modified it into a fully functioning reel with a cedar drum mounted on a wooden frame with two handles on each side to feed out the waxed rope and to wind it in. At the end of the rope was a buoyant belt that would attach to the lightsaber, who later became known as Beltman. It took at least four to operate. The Beltman would strap the belt around his chest and bolt out into the water while the other four fed the line out. Once the distressed swimmer was reached, they would both be reeled back in. It was highly effective, and after being first demonstrated on the 24th of March 1907, was a fixture on Australian beaches all the way up until 1993. 
and legend has it that the very first person rescued using this method was a young Charlie Smith, who would later grow up to become the famous aviator Charles Kingsford Smith. Although I'm pretty sure that while this is a cool story, it might just be legend only. Surf lifesavers are now instantly recognisable on all patrolled beaches, a cultural icon and continue to be one of Australia's most prided organisations. Yet for some reason, their darkest day and their most incredible triumph barely rates a mention. It is still the largest surf rescue in Australia's history and yet many people don't even know about Black Sunday on Bondi Beach. Black Sunday happened on the 6th of February 1938. It was a hot summer's day and the people of Sydney had naturally flocked to the beaches, Bondi in particular very crowded with an estimated 35,000 people. Conditions that day were fairly fine, but it was noted early on that the water had a bit of a roughness to it. Not enough to alarm and certainly not enough to close down the beach, but just considering the sheer number of people that were there, the lifesavers decided to bring down a few extra reels, just in case. It wasn't just Bondi that reported rough waters that day. Newcastle, Manly and Maroubra all experienced a spike of distressed swimmers, particularly Maroubra where 70 people needed to be rescued that Sunday. It was about 3 o'clock. The tide was slowly pulling out around this time, which meant that bathers were naturally following it, all the way out to a sandbank that was usually inaccessible when the tide was high. Bathers stood around in waist-deep water, splashing about, chatting with each other, and generally enjoying the cool relief of the water as they allowed themselves to be pushed and pulled by the rolling waves, feeling safe enough even though they knew that just beyond that bank was a sudden drop in a deep channel of water. But, as long as they stayed where they were, there would be no problem. Around that time in the afternoon, there were about 800 people in the water. There was also around this time, 70 to 80 members of the Bondi Surf Bathers Lifesaving Club, who came down to the beach in preparation for their usual Sunday surf carnivals. A constant feature with these clubs throughout the years has been meticulous drilling, designed to both keep the lifesavers fit, to make any rescue second nature, and honestly, just as a bit of fun. To the uninitiated, these drills look rather strange, as they had developed their own technique that wasn't really seen anywhere else in the world, and a lot of visitors outright dismissed them. Mr Francis Fouchet was a French-Canadian wrestler who happened to be at Bondi that Sunday. He later commented that, when I first came here, I saw several of your surf carnivals, and the drill they did struck me as rather amusing. I attached no significance to it and compared it, in my own mind, with a wooden soldier act. But when I saw those boys go into action on Sunday, I saw just how much that drill had done for them. They were just great. Some say it was the result of a collapsing sandbank, but experts believe it was more likely a flash rip that caused mayhem. The following chaos was later detailed by Tom Meager, who was the chief beach inspector or the head lifeguard that day, and who two days later submitted a report of the events to Waverley Council. In his report he stated, Shortly after 3pm, following a slight lull in the incoming waves, there was followed a run of about five or six really big waves in quick succession. 
These waves swept through the bathers, knocking many of them off their feet and frightening them very badly. As each wave surged higher up the beach, the next followed closely on it. There was not the usual break for the water to recede. The result was with such a volume of water high up on the beach, there naturally followed a terrific backwash that swept everything before it, and we estimated that about 250 were swept off the bank where they had been standing in water about waist deep into the deep water of the channel. Fortunately, none of them were more than 70 to 80 yards from the shore, but to get 250 people clawing and grabbing in indescribable panic out of the surf was something that had not previously been attempted. They said it was as if the sea was boiling. In less than a minute, an average Sunday afternoon transformed into the largest surf rescue in Australia's history. More than 250 people needing help. 80 lifesavers and 8 reels. There was no hesitation. The Bondi Surf lifesavers acted instantly, their Sunday drilling suddenly becoming the most dangerous version of the real thing. The beltmen suited up with practice efficiency, but 8 reels was clearly not going to be enough, so as those with the tether drove into the waves, lifesavers with no belts or flotations were right there beside them. This seems very dangerous by today's standards, but those standards only exist because of what happened that Sunday. At the time, the objective was simply to save as many as you could. And it wasn't just the surf lifesavers. Basil McDonald ran a surfboard hire shop at Bondi, and the moment he and his employees realized what had happened, they grabbed as many boards as they could and sprinted down to the water in an attempt to try and keep the bathers afloat as they waited for rescue. As they went in and out over and over, the water soon became peppered with boards, each with up to 10 people desperately clinging to them. As they started to bring back the first victims, doctors and nurses emerged from the crowd, ready to offer assistance. But the smooth, cool actions of those trained to deal with emergencies unfortunately became engulfed and almost lost as Bondi Beach erupted in hysteria and pandemonium. There was still something like 35,000 people out there who just watched their loved ones get washed out to sea and panic on the beaches proved as deadly as panic in the water. Soon rescue efforts were hampered and even halted by terrified beachgoers who started to push and pull at the surf lifesavers. People would be brought to shore, desperately needing resuscitation, yet the lifesavers and the doctors would find themselves thrown off the victim by someone looking for their missing loved one, or even worse, by someone who assumed that the unfamiliar actions of resus were some sort of violation that they needed to shield their friends from, unaware that such panicked actions could cost a person their life. The crowds started grabbing onto the lines en masse, heaving violently to the point where the lines would snap, once again leaving swimmers stranded. There was one horrible instance where there were 20 people holding onto a line, slowly being pulled back, before someone started shouting that it was taking too long and that they would drown. A panicked crowd grabbed onto the line and it snapped. There were eight reels on the beach, and then seven, six, five. All up and down reels started to break apart as they strained to pull everyone back to shore. Out to sea, those drowning were not benefiting from the good intentions back on shore. Though no one was more than 70 metres out, you don't need deep water to drown, it just needs to be a little deeper than you are tall. There were some who were strong enough to swim back to shore themselves, about 80, and while that number may seem low, this was the 30s and people didn't exactly so much swim as they rather just stood around in the water. 
The costumes weren't exactly helping either, as they were made of a material that soaked up the water and weighed people down rather than helped with buoyancy. And it wasn't just the healthy that were struggling, there were old folk out there and children too. After being pushed and pulled, buffeted, dunked and dragged out, swimmers were dazed and many of them had already swallowed water. Many couldn't see the shore and were too disorientated to find it. People started to scream and cry as they desperately tried to keep their heads above water. One interesting thing that came from this was the stark difference between the men who needed rescuing and the women. The next day it was reported in the evening news that Rescuers at the surf club all agreed that one of the most amazing features was the extraordinary panic amongst the men and the comparative placidity of the women, though being weaker swimmers, their danger was greater. One of the rescuers said that the men were crying like girls, shrieking with terror and loudly shouting for help. On the other hand, the girls were calm and proceeded to wait quietly, keeping afloat as best they could till rescued. Many of the beltmen were seized by men that they had gone to rescue, and two of them were almost drowned through being dragged underwater. One of those lifesavers that was nearly drowned was a man by the name of A. Elm, who gave this report to the age. I thought I was gone, said A. Elm, one of the club's lifesavers, and the first to don a belt and to dash to the rescue. All around me people were screaming and crying, and many grabbed me. At one stage one man had a hold of me by the throat, another grasped me round the chest, and another had a hold of my legs. It seemed as if dozens of people were hanging onto the lifeline, and every time a huge wave broke over me I was dragged under. Elm added that at one stage he was forced to knock a man unconscious, who, in a desperate frenzy to be saved, had grabbed him by the throat. This bather was picked up by another lifesaver, who had come to the assistance of Elm. But not everybody was so lost in panic that they thought only of themselves. There was one man, Charles Sauer, who of course went by the nickname of Sweet. He managed to get himself to one of the ropes that was being reeled in and wrapped it around his wrist, trying his best to keep afloat. It was in a split second as he was being dragged back that he spied a little girl floating face down in the water, her hair fanning out from her. With his free hand, Charles reached out and grabbed her by the hair, arms now stretched taut, breathing becoming more and more difficult. As soon as his feet hit the sand, he gathered up the girl into his arms and ran her up the beach, screaming for assistance. Surf lifesavers met the two and instantly started working on reviving the girl while Charles stood watch. Then, it's said that Charles, who was already panting, bent over for a moment, hands on his knees, and then collapsed. Side by side, the surf lifesavers tried to revive both of them. The girl survived. Charles, sweet, sour, did not. He was 53. The beach now looked like a war zone. Ambulances and police cars now packed the streets, carting away load after load. In the end, more than 40 people needed to be hospitalised. The clubhouse was full to bursting with those who needed medical attention or simply somewhere to recover from their ordeal, and it was becoming so crowded that people were taken up onto the roof. Warm blankets, hot water bottles and gallons of milk were provided to slowly help people recover. For many, shock was the worst of it. It had all happened so quickly that many didn't even have time to process it. The waves had hit a little after 3pm. The rescue was called to a close a little after 3.30 and the beach was shut down for the rest of the day. 
Marshall Dyer was an American doctor who had been visiting Bondi, enjoying his holiday and trying out his brand new camera. Many of the pictures we have of Black Sunday were taken by him and his family. He later gave an interview of his shock at the whole affair, though not so much at the rough seas, but of the fact that no one got paid that day. He later gave a report to the newspaper where he said, I have never seen and I never expect to see again such magnificent work as done by those lifesavers. It is the most incredible work of love in the world. Just imagine all those men going into the water without a moment's hesitation, risking their lives, all for love. In America, our lifesavers are paid, except for a few students who, during their vacations, do voluntary work at the inland lakes without pay. Sunday's rescue was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. It was a scene that I shall never forget. And when I get back to the United States, I will tell them of your magnificent surfmen. There are no men like them in the world. At the end of the chaos, somewhere between 250 and 300 people had been swept out to sea. 180 were rescued, 60 hospitalized, 35 resuscitated, four dead. And after some men's clothing and belongings were discovered unclaimed in one of the beach shacks, one was declared missing. In total, Black Sunday claimed five lives. Bernard Byrne, Roger McGregor, Leslie Porter, Charles Sauer, and the missing bather, Michael Kennedy, whose body was only found that following Friday. These were the first recorded deaths from drowning at Bondi Beach. Like a wave, the largest surf rescue in Australia's history had come and gone, and it had been conducted completely by volunteers. An inquest was held, and it was ruled that the five men died from accidental drowning, although there was a severe reparation made on the crowd whose hysterical panic had so thwarted rescuers. Thomas Meagher most certainly believed that, saying with some bitterness later that people were clawing at each other, pulling each other under and trampling on each other, and that caused the fatalities. We could have got them all back but for that. In his final statement on the matter, the city coroner, Mr Orman, said, Here, five people were drowned simultaneously in rough waters, and when it is realised that about 250 or 300 were in the sea, described as boiling, we have a striking instance of the excellent work done by our surf life-saving clubs. One wonders how many fatalities might occur throughout the year if it was not for the services of these voluntary lifesavers. From Bondi, we are told, 350 were brought in by lines last year, and that by one club alone. I realise that the efforts of these men must be the means of preventing many deaths from drowning. They don't ask to be praised. Mr Jefferson, their captain, said that he did not mention the work of the police and the ambulance because it was their job, just as the rescuing of surfers was the job of the surf club members. But there is this difference. Their work is voluntary and it is wonderful work that they do. 
Black Sunday not only transformed how surf lifesaving trained and organized, but also how the country viewed them. They are so entrenched as part of our national identity these days that we've forgotten that the idea of a volunteer lifesaving team, while commended, was originally seen as a bunch of people who were just manning flags and doing odd things with a gigantic fishing reel. They went from slightly busybody do-gooders to unquestionable heroes overnight, and that reputation has stayed with them. On average, annually, there are about 10,000 rescues, 65,000 first aid treatments, and over three and a half million preventative measures taken all across Australia's beaches. Since 1907, over 660,000 people have been rescued. In 2018, Surf Life Saving Australia had 173,865 members, with 314 clubs covering over 36,000 kilometres, which is more than half of our coastline. It is still the largest group of volunteer surf lifesavers in the world. Black Sunday now barely even rates and mentioned most of these days, and the reels are now antiquated relics only brought out for show and carnivals. Bondi is still known for its temperamental surf, especially the nastily named Backpackers Express, an area notorious for rips and strong currents that many newcomers, unaware of what the flags mean, go right into and the surf lifesavers are still there, ready to pull them back out again.